I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. We wanted to bring you an extra special episode today because as we're releasing this episode, we were supposed to be five days into the 16 days of competition at the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games. But for the first time in history, the Olympics have been postponed due to COVID-19 until next summer, Tokyo 2021. To honor what we had hoped for this summer and in looking forward with excitement to next summer, I'm bringing on a broadcaster that has covered 11 summer and winter Olympic Games. In addition to being one of the staple play-by-play announcers for NBC at the Olympics, Ted Robinson has also been the radio play-by-play announcer for the San Francisco 49ers, and he's covered tennis from the U.S. Open to Wimbledon for three decades. Ted shares so many amazing Olympic stories with us in this episode, and he even tells us what his top three most unexpected Olympic moments are. We discuss the mindset of a defending Olympic champion and which athlete has had the biggest impact on him over the years. But before we dive in, if you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button because I don't want you to miss a single episode. And if you don't subscribe, you might not see when the next one comes out. And while you're there, please go ahead and rate and review us because that really does allow us to continue to bring on these amazing guests. And they're the ones that are going to give you the tools and the wisdom and the insight that you need in order to overcome those big obstacles and raise the level of your performance. Now, I believe that there is gold in your future. So let's listen in to some of the most exciting Olympic moments with Ted Robinson. All right. So this today is a little strange for me because I'm welcoming the voice that is always welcoming us to major sporting events. So I'm a little nervous and I feel like there should be some kind of epic background music playing. But okay, here's my best shot. Welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast, Ted Robinson. Laura, this is, yeah, this is role reversal, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Oh, I'm so glad you could be on with us today. Um, I I mean, the first time I think you and I really worked together, we'd met each other before, but I think the first time we worked together was the 2012 Olympic trials. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. Of course, I had the chance to, to watch you perform in 2004 and 2008. And gosh, I so remember your trials in 04 because that was my first diving ah, uh, experience ever. Nice. And that was such a wonderful competition. And you were- Broke you in with a little they, drama. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. You, you inserted drama. And it was, a, it was a goofy trials, as you remember. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily the most- uh, wasn't the smartest format. Yes, <laughs> that that, that's well put. Yes. Right. But but you uh, you proved your mettle. You were money in that last dive. And I remember vividly um, because that was my introduction again to diving. And I, whoa, now I know why you were the champion. <laughs> and uh, and then I went on to watch these two Greeks that came off a Suvlaki stand. Oh, yeah. And they threw them into Speedos and won a gold medal in Synchro at the, in the introduction of Synchro in those games. And I went, are you kidding me? That can actually happen too? Yeah, 2004 was a little crazy. We'll we'll have to talk more about that later. But I, I remember my at, at the semifinals. So I was covering the semifinal rounds at the 2012 Olympic Trials in Seattle, and I was terrified because I'd never done live events. I'd always done like voiceovers, maybe a little bit of reporting down on the deck, but I'd never like done the real thing. And so, and, but you were so calm, cool, and collected because this is your bag, and you made it so easy for me and a lot of fun, and I fell in love with it. So thanks for that. <laughs> well, Laura, come on, and, and look, it's an obvious thing when I walk up to the 10 meter platform and look down, I go, how in the heck do you do that? <laughs> so it's the same thing. It's what you're trained to do. It's what I've been trained to do. And and what makes you special is you're natural at the TV thing. So whenever you decide to stop diving in another 20 years, I think, 
you're going to fall right back into TV. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Well, I want to know, Ted, give us a little background on like how you got into broadcasting. Like, were you an athlete growing up? Were you always drawn to that? Because you've done radio and TV. Like, kind of tell us a little bit of your background. All right. So I was born and raised in and around New York City. I was a total uh, athlete, a Sandlot athlete. If you've you've Mm -hmm. ever seen the baseball movie, The Sandlot. Of course. uh, That little chubby kind of loud-mouthed kid that kind of was the ringleader of the Sandlot games was me growing up. (laughs) And like many in my world, at some point, we love playing, but we recognize that really playing is probably not the long-term bet for us. And so when I was in high school, that uh, realization kind of struck me, and it was a blessing because it allowed me at 17 years old to realize, all right, what is the next best thing? And talking about the games seemed to be a pretty good deal. I, and I use the word blessing very sincerely because it really is. It's, it was a focus and, a, and kind of a, a stroke that hit me at a young age, and I was completely channeled from age 17 on to do what I am still doing into my early 60s now. And that was a focus. So uh, I was a ball sport kid. So I became a ball sport announcer. That makes sense. And it it was exactly. And I fell into the major sports. And uh, literally at age 40, I was working for CBS and doing basketball. And I asked them, if I could have some role, some participation in the Nagano Olympic Games of 1998. It was the last games for CBS. They had no, they knew they were lame duck. And I thought I could just go and do some small sport hangout. And just to say I did one Olympic Games. And they said yes. And they sent me there to do. And I wound up having an incredible experience. I called three gold medals. Oh, wow. But I, th- I thought it was a one and done. And then NBC reached out to me about going to Sydney to call baseball. And I'm still going for NBC <laughs> Olympics. So it's been truly amazing. And it has introduced me to all of the non-ball sports, like diving, that I've come to have an incredible appreciation for, Laura. And and the, the, the punctuation of it is to understand what you and thousands of others like you have done, which is to invest yourself so fully in something in which you get one shot every four years. I evangelize about this, that I truly believe there is a distinction within the Olympics. There are Olympic sports and there are sports in the Olympics. Oh, that's well put. And the difference to me is what you did. You had one shot every four years to do your thing. And that's it. And an Olympic gold medal was the ultimate achievement in your chosen field. Right. As opposed to basketball, and I'm just throwing sports out there, but let's say a basketball, golf is now in the Olympics, where there's those are professionals, and they have their own professional championships to shoot for. The Olympics have just been thrown in, and I just, I, I, I really gravitate towards the Olympic sports. I love that moment when... Laura Wilkinson stands on the tower in a suburb of St. Louis knowing, I need to nail this last dive to get back to defend my Olympic championship. That's awesome. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, you've done, you've done tennis for over two decades too, right? A lot with John McEnroe, and you're kind of like a big voice there as well, aren't you? Well, I, I fell into tennis uh, a little over 30 years ago now. And the great life lesson, Laura, there was it took me a while. It took me more than 10 years of doing it because at the, 
at the time I was introduced to tennis as an announcer, I was still doing baseball really full-time and dabbling in the other ball sports, but I was really a full-time baseball announcer. And I enjoyed tennis, but it was not something I ever envisioned being a, a, an instrumental part of my of my professional career. And over time, people seemed to receive what I did in tennis well. And I kind of resisted it. And eventually, it was really, it was 1999. So I can tell you, it was 12 years into doing tennis. And NBC reached out to me separately from the Olympic Games and offered me the chance to work Wimbledon. Oh, wow. That's when my jaw dropped and said, wow, I must be okay at this. <laughs> and so as a result, I was hired by NBC to do Wimbledon, which I did for them until they lost the contract. But that was 12 is, years. Is getting, is getting an opportunity like that kind of like your Olympics in broadcasting? Absolutely. Well, because Wimbledon is, you know, and, and look, we have other events. It's uh, Wimbledon is to tennis what the Masters is to golf. That's right. the way I've always looked at it. It is the event, even though the, the surface and the difference, of course, all golf is played on the same, well, is all played on grass. Tennis is played on three different surfaces. And grass is the least of the three. I mean, there's, there's just very few grass courts in the world and the cost of maintenance, et cetera. So despite that, Wimbledon is still the championship that every single tennis player grows up dreaming of winning. And that's why it's the Masters. So yes, to get to go to broadcast that for the network of record to follow a Hall of Fame broadcaster, Dick Enberg, that was extraordinary. And what it did was, back to your original question, Laura, was I, I began to accept that tennis was something I was going to do for a long time. And the the analogy was I swam upstream for about 12 years. Oh, wow. And I finally realized, why are you doing that? You don't go anywhere. Swim with it. If if people think you do well in tennis, if tennis likes you, accept it graciously, humbly, and go forward with it. And and so now 33 years later, I'm still in it as soon as it resumes. That's a great lesson there. I, I mean, yeah, I think a lot of times we fight stuff because we're like, maybe it's not what we think we should be doing or not what we think we're you know, called to do, but we happen to be great at it. And sometimes, yeah, we need to just kind of accept that and roll with it. And it may open up, you know, a whole new, a whole new set of doors and opportunities to go through for sure. Now, have you been to 11 Olympic games? Is that right? That's right. Oh my goodness. And summer and winter. Have you done any para games? No, I've never done the para games. I, I, I've NBC used to offer me the opportunity, but it was always a conflict because I've been a football announcer for the last 12 years, and that was always a conflict. So that I would love uh, for the clear reasons to see that. I did a Goodwill Games. Uh, that was when they were still alive. I did a Goodwill Games actually in Lake Placid, which was a great experience to see that, you know, the the, the Olympic venues that were still being used, mm -hmm. but never had a chance to do the para. Oh, that's, that's cool. How many, how many, so you've been to 11 games, winter and summer, but what, how many sports have you covered? <laughs> so I, I have covered a lot. Um, my, my role has settled into diving. So Tokyo, Which will we're be, really, we're really happy well, about that. <laughs> well, thank you. And uh, di uh, Tokyo will be my fifth diving. I, I started in Athens and I've had diving ever since Uh short track the Apollo Ono sport is like that resonates more with American fans than anything to describe it. Short track has become my winter sport, but on the track to that, uh, in the summer games, as I've referenced, I started calling baseball, a USA gold medal in baseball in Sydney. And during those Sydney games, literally during the games, I was told, by the way, Ted, we need you to go call synchronized swimming. Oh my goodness. Was, goodness. What? I mean, this was while I was already in Sydney. 
And it wound up, I called all three days of synchronized swimming, a sport that I had no experience with and no preparation for. Right. And was and was blessed to have another Olympic champion, Tracy Ruiz. Now, Tracy Ruiz Conforto was my partner. And I physically walked in during the day, I think, where I had a baseball game at night. I went into a, a synchro practice and sat next to Tracy and said, I am the complete blank slate. Please teach me. <laughs> and 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 obviously, she can't teach me the sport, but she taught me the structure, which is in, in our broadcast world, I think that's the great lesson, Laura, is that in my role, my job is to explain in those sports that I have no knowledge of, mm-hmm. is to explain how it's being contested, who these people are, maybe a few basic rules on how the scores or judging is being done. And then the analyst who is either competed and or coached the sport explains what's happening and why. Right. And it's a wonderful lesson of of, stay, of literally staying in your lane. And so it was synchronized swimming for me. And then in uh, Athens, in the middle of the diving, I was actually sent to do whitewater kayaking. Oh, wow. So you were doing multiple events at the Olympics. In Athens. And that was the last time. Athens, they had me uh, because the diving hadn't yet been spread out as it is now into, you know, basically there's no days off in diving. Now I think there's one off day I had in, we had in Rio, right? I think it was one day. Yeah. Um, it, Athens, there's still some off days. So they sent me to whitewater kayaking for, I think, three days, which was another great experience. A sport, even though I'm a, a water person in my life, as a, I do a lot of swimming and grew up on a beach. But anyway, I had no experience in that sport. And we had a athlete from Wisconsin who won a silver medal. I think it was the first ever by an American athlete in that sport. And that was another. That was a great thrill. In the Winter Games uh, in Torino in 2006, they had me call the first day of biathlon, which was another sport I knew nothing about. Phenomenal to watch it, but knew nothing. And again, had a wonderful analyst who was an Olympic biathlete. Hey, so, Chad, tell me what's happening here. Explain this to everybody. So, well, I have to, I have to ask you because, like, do you get nervous at all walking into the events where you don't know anything? Because when I watch you, you're always researching, you're always studying, you're very prepared. And like the last two Olympics I went to, I was doing things way out of my wheelhouse. And then um, Rio, you know, I was on the deck, we couldn't see the diving, but then they would throw to me, and I'd have to analyze stuff I hadn't even seen. I didn't even know what was coming on the screen. I was having to do stand ups, and I was like, you know, we're just coming up with stuff so fast. Like, and it makes me so uncomfortable because I'm, you know, as an athlete, I'm just used to preparing and being super ready for things. And so, I mean, it was great. It like grew me a lot and it stretched me out of my comfort zone. And I, and I learned from that, but like, how are you walking into those events? Are you nervous? Are you like, I got this? Cause you just always seem like, I got this. (laughs) Well, and and Laura, that's, that's a great question because it does lead to the, the trait you want to find, which is from doing, and it started in Nagano when I was assigned pre-Nagano, I was given freestyle skiing. So both the moguls and the aerials. And then after they finished short track speed skating, which was only three days of competition in the Nagano games. So I had three sports that I totally prepared for, even though I knew nothing about them going in, I had chances to prepare. Mm -hmm. While I was in Nagano through a crazy unforeseen set of circumstances, I was asked on about 12 hours notice to go do giant slalom uh, snowboarding. It was the first Olympic Games for snowboarding. And they had a slalom, a big, just like slalom skiing. It was slalom snowboarding. And so they absolutely called me into the office at about four o'clock in the afternoon in Nagano and said, we need you to be there. It starts at 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. It was all geared for U.S. primetime TV. Oh, my goodness. So they 
walked me across the street to a, a Japanese version of Denny's or Waffle House. <laughs> and the research guy gave me a one-hour cram session. Then they put me in a car and drove me an hour and a half away to get up to the mountain, slept for seven hours, and then go to the mountain at five in the morning and call it that next morning. Same formula I just described, Laura. Had a great partner, um, Steve Podborski, who was an Olympic athlete himself. Hey, I, I just, here, here's the basics of it. You take it from there. And the point is once it was finished and they say, hey, nice job. Basically, you didn't screw up. <laughs> and, but what that does, it, Laura, conquers your fear. So now you, you, you build a little confidence. And then I, in between Olympic Games, NBC would send me to a ski jumping event. I went to Italy to do the cross the World Nordic Championships with a lot of cross country skiing. You do a, a few more of those, and suddenly you understand the formula. You lose your fear, and now you say, "Okay, I can handle anything." And it's a great, no different than you getting up on the tower. It's a great confidence, right? When you can be given an assignment and fully have confidence, you'll handle it. You may not be a Hall of Fame at it, but you'll handle it. And by the way, it's an extraordinary valuable trait because the people who hire love to know that. Yeah. They love to know that I can call Laura and give her an assignment and I know she'll handle it. That helps your it helps your employment greatly. Yeah. It's and just yeah, such a good lesson. Like sometimes you just gotta walk through those things, even if you're scared, you're not prepared, and trust that you're gonna get there and do the best that you can. And and maybe it turns out great. You never know, but you've got to try. You won't know unless you try, right? I just love that. Okay. So in all of these things that you've covered, um, Olympic and otherwise, has there been somebody you've either met and got to work with or some like event that you called and then got to meet the athlete that you were just like, this, this is just somebody I really wanted to meet and you were kind of in awe or are you just kind of like all taking it in stride because you're always dealing with amazing athletes? I mean, certainly the most impactful athlete. And now he's been a broadcast partner for me personally in my Olympic experience has been Apollo Ono because that his sport, short track speed skating, didn't start until the 1992 games. Uh, by 1998, Nagano, when I went there, it was the third Olympic Games for short track, but people in the United States had no idea what it was. And in the beginning, I remember explaining to people, basically, it's roller derby on ice. <laughs> That's and, a good and a lot of people, Right. A lot of people of my generation remember roller derby. Roller derby had a great run before your time in the U.S., but it's colorful uniforms, uh, skaters, wheels, obviously, as opposed to blades, but a very tight inline track. And there's physical bumping and jostling. That's really what short track is. Now, of course, short track carries much more speed. It carries an element of danger, which we've learned through the years. But the person who introduced that sport to the U.S. was Apollo. And I called all eight of his medals and watched him kind of grow up from a teenager who had a lot of fame thrust on him early. And maybe like a lot of people had to figure out how to handle that fame to an extremely poised, mature athlete at, in his final games in Vancouver and then working with him in the most recent games in Korea was extraordinary. He's a great partner, has crafted a magnificent career in, he deals a lot in cryptocurrency. He also, of course, as, as you would as an Olympic champion, has an identity there that he continues to use in terms of motivational uh, speaking and just a very sharp guy. So I, that's the, the individual athlete that's had the most impact on me to be close to and around the Olympic champions like yourself 
like David Bodiah to get to know David over the course of multiple Olympics and to call his extraordinary gold, which you were in the stands watching because I know I pointed you out. I was sitting right behind you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, uh, and I and I will say this, that I've learned, and you lived it because you had that moment, but I, I learned several times, but the David Bodiah gold medal to me is still the most stark in 11 Olympic games, the most stark experience of Olympic sports and 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 the definition of winning if i may be reaching for a phrase here because when the chinese diver chu bo did his final dive and came up with a silver medal we had three camera shots in succession it was the extraordinary joy that david's last dive held up mm-hmm. and that he had won a gold medal the first since laura and then the shot of the chinese diver with his head leaning against the wall behind the tower, sobbing. Mm. And then the shot of Team GB throwing Tom Daly into the pool. (laughs) Celebration because he won the bronze medal. Right. So you had gold, joy, silver, tears of sadness, bronze, joy. And it was, of course, the Chinese reaction was wrong. And it's something that NBC has hammered into our heads since I started in 2000 and and I so thank them for this. You win Olympic medals. You win a bronze medal, right? Right. It's not a disappointment. There's no disappointment. And there are, they've shown us examples from the past, you know, in the 70s and 80s of commentators, sideline reporters, you know, talking to an athlete who won a bronze, an American athlete, and saying, you know, you know, are you disappointed? No, you're never disappointed to win a medal. <laughs> and that moment, that David Bodiah moment, so struck that home to me because the Chinese diver clearly was diving with the weight of gold or bust. Right. And I would think I have never been in your shoes, but I would think that's a horrible way to compete. Yeah. Wow. Those are, those are powerful moments. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and I, I love, it kind of reminds me, there was an old commercial maybe back in like the late nineties and it was something about whoever says getting second place is the first loser or second, like if it's not gold, you don't win or something like that. And it shows, I don't know if it was pocket Hercules or some weightlifter and he lifts this huge weight and he drops it and he starts jumping up and down all excited and is like, never won an Olympic silver medal. You know, and it was like this joyous moment of winning silver, you know, and I, I love that that's um, a great point because some people do feel like if you, if you don't win, if you're second or third, you're losing, or if you don't medal that you're losing even. And just sometimes to be at the Olympic Games for, I mean, the vast majority of athletes is a win in and of itself. I mean, you want to have those big goals, but um, a lot of times just just getting there is like half the victory, you know? And how hard is it? And you've, gosh, Laura, you're living it again, but you know that in most sports, the world changes dramatically in four years time. And so you come back four years later after, and I don't know that, specifics for sure, but the competition's gotten better. There's always a younger group that comes in. We just had a chance to to visit on a conversation with Katie Ledecky earlier this month. And I know I've talked to Katie about a little bit about this. She knows, hey, you know, from the time she broke in as a 15-year-old in London to Tokyo 2021, it will be when she'll be 24, I believe. There's a whole wave of young swimmers that have come along that are chasing her. And they know, they know exactly what they need to do to get there. So right. 
that that's the point that you know you can be the defending Olympic champion, but in four years your sport has likely changed and the field of competitors has certainly changed. Well, and your head also changes too because at the first time you're going out there and you're you're the underdog and you're trying to get it, but once you have done it, then all of a sudden you're this different person to the media at least. I mean, it's all it all comes down to the way you accept it in your head. But sometimes when when it's put on people that they are the defending champion and they're defending this thing, then they they walk at you know walk toward it like it's something they have to lose when essentially it's a brand new competition nobody's won it it's not yours to lose you have to go out there and get it but it's it's a mindset that that from the media can really begin to affect athletes if they let it it's it's really interesting and Laura, that's so right. And as you said that, the other athlete, even though I've never called swimming in the Olympics, I have called an awful lot of swimming for NBC, uh, world championships, national championships, et cetera. And I've, I've gotten to know a little bit Michael Phelps. And to watch how Michael handled that, what you just described during Rio was so impressive. Because here's a guy that did the extraordinary feat in Beijing that he could never do again. Right. But came back to do you know, now we're eight years later into Rio to come back one more time and understand and be able to handle the scale down expectation, right? Understood he had a, I thought, he had a very good grasp of what he could do and then went for it and got, I'm sure in his mind, got a pretty good chunk of that. Well, however, however, in London, I think the gravity of it did hit him and he yes. he was struggling there, but then came back in Rio. And like you said, was in a totally yes. much better place with better expectations of himself and, and how to do that. And it was, it was great to, I mean, he was smiling. He was a different, totally different person in Rio. And it was so refreshing to see that. Right. Because he didn't, and you're hundred percent right, Laura, you're right on. In London, he still was the eight gold medal guy mm-hmm. and people, oh, he'll just come back and do that again. Or maybe he'll get seven. And right. by Rio, you're right. This was the farewell. But again, just watching him and I covered several championships in his lead up to or to Rio, rather. And you could see how he he was in a better place in his own life, his himself. He was in a better place. And therefore, he handled, OK, I'm no longer 2008 Michael Phelps. I'm now 2016 Michael Phelps. And that's still pretty darn good. Right. And And watching that and actually in the I think you saw it, too. We were in the same hotel as. Nicole and her family and Michael's mother and just visiting with them at occasions in the hotel lobbies, you could see they were all in a good place, even though Michael was in the village. Right. You could get the vibe from his family that they were all in a good place. Well, how can you not be with cute little Boomer right there, you know, with his big old <laughs> headphones on? He's so yeah. cute. <laughs> exactly. Well, okay. So you have, we've, we're talking about all these exciting events. I love it. Um, but what maybe is a memory that sticks out to you that you've covered that was maybe not what you expected? Wow. Two that come to mind right away. Actually, three, and I'll be brief here. First one, the very first Olympic event I called. So I'm in Nagano and I had prepared, but the first day of competition, one of the lead events was the moguls skiing. So it's my first day at the Olympic Games, first day of work. So, you know, you think you're going to ease into it. Johnny Mosley wins a gold medal. (laughs) The first day. Nice and easy. And wow, that was, I mean, you talk about unexpected and it was, it it just lands on you as if to say, okay, you just went off the tower into deep water, dude. (laughs) You're not easing into the waiting pool here because you better be good. You better handle it right. And it wound up being a great personal experience for me because- I believe the United States only won five gold medals in those games. It was not a very good Team USA showing. 
And I called three of them. Three of them were in wow. the freestyle skiing. It was uh, Johnny and Moguls and then Eric Burgess and uh, Nikki Stone won the aerials. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. Gold medals. Yeah. So I, I, I think the overall number was five and I called three of them, which was just, you know, Epic. How, how could that ever happen? Another one, sec number two was London 2012, where NBC did, and I was very happy to do it. I did, I was excused from one day of diving to call the gold medal men's tennis match at Wimbledon. Oh, sweet. And that was Roger Federer against Andy Murray. And for those who are not tennis aficionados, and as of 2012, there had not been an Englishman or a Brit, since Andy Murray is from Scotland, we'd have to say a Brit, who had won Wimbledon since the 1930s. And it was this ongoing, long-running, you know, when will this happen? Like, when will the Chicago Cubs ever win the World Series thing? (laughs) Well, in 2012, Andy Murray beat Roger Federer to win the Olympic gold. And what made that extraordinary was when he won, the center court went crazy. They were rooting for him. It was a nationalist moment. Somebody threw the Union Jack flag down onto the court. Murray draped it around his shoulders, ran around the ring of of center court. And then, of course, gets to stand on the podium and they raise the flag and play the anthem. Uh. The next summer, he won Wimbledon. He finally broke that drought for the Brits to win Wimbledon the next summer. None of that happens. When he won Wimbledon, royalty comes on the court. It's a very proper ceremony with a with a silver trophy and a few words, and that's it. So what I'm and there's no nationalism to it, is what I'm saying. Yeah. So the Olympic moment, he was a Brit and the entire nation celebrated. But the third and final one, which is the most moving, unexpected one to me, was in Sydney, where as I touched on earlier, the United States baseball team won the gold medal. Exceptional because it still wasn't major league players. It was a combination of minor league players, a few college players. There were a couple of players who were on the way up and eventually did become major league standouts, but they weren't yet. They were young players on the rise. Cuba was still Cuba in baseball. They were the they were this unknown powerhouse that crushed everybody in international competition. And the United States beat them for the gold medal. The manager of that team was Tommy Lasorda, who at the time was in his early 70s, had retired from the Dodgers, but was still an incredibly renowned figure within baseball. When the United States wins the gold medal, they beat Cuba in the gold medal game. Now they bring out the podium, your moment, Laura, and the players climb up on the top step. Tommy starts to climb up there and they have to pull him back. He didn't understand the Olympic rule that only athletes get medals. Ah. So he stood down below. But then when the flag goes up and our anthem is played and our NBC cameras are panning down the the row of players, half a dozen at least have tears coming down their cheeks, including one player on the team who had already been part of a World Series championship team. So he had a World Series ring, but he now gets a gold medal at 34 years old. And then they pan to Tommy and he's got tears. And that's the moment. That was the moment that the Olympic Games struck home to me. It was my second Games, my first summer one. But to see these grizzled, hardened baseball players, and I was a baseball announcer at the time, so I understood the the mindset they had, yet they were overcome with the emotion of winning a medal to represent your country, to stand up there, to see the flag go up in another country, to hear your anthem. That was the moment. I was I was sold 
from that moment forward, I'm serious. I was going to say, I'm going to work the Olympic Games until I'm disinvited. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's probably, and I mean, granted, I've never been a professional, you know, athlete in that way, but I'm just imagining that it's just such a different impact going for your team, which is, which is still amazing. Obviously, World Series is kind of amazing, but representing your country instead, it's just something different because it's the entire nation. You know what I mean? It just, it, there's such a deep and profound meaning to that. And you realize that you're not just doing it for you. You know, where a lot of times you think you're doing your sport for you and you've got to kind of be selfish as an athlete and get all the things that you need to do and make sure you're taking care of you. But in that moment, you realize that all these things you have done are not just for you. It's like for your country. And I think one of my favorite things um, about the Olympics and, and really feeling like Team USA and that is in the opening ceremonies. Because I've fortunately, all three Olympics that I went to, I got to go to the opening ceremonies. And when we start to, you know, you line up, I mean, you have to wait for like hours on end to get into the opening ceremonies for the parade of athletes. But while you're waiting and you're getting closer and closer, to the stadium and there's like this tunnel that you always go through that kind of like opens up into, you know, the the track or the stadium where you walk around and it's it's like you're walking through this dark tunnel and you see the light at the end. It's kind of, you know, this whole just amazing analogy but in real life. And as you're getting closer and closer, people start running and they're chanting USA at the same time. And when you've got 6-700 athletes all wearing the same thing chanting USA and you're running full speed into this bright light where's the stadium of like 100,000 and people, it is this moment where you realize I'm at the Olympics and this is so much bigger than me. And, and I'm so thrilled to hear you say that, Laura, because that's been become a standard question for me at the Olympic Games when I meet, again, most of the time now it's divers in summer and the short track skaters in the winter. And I always ask them, you know, you meet everybody two or three days before competition begins to the NBC announcers, we get our debrief as you did with us in Rio. And it's always, you're going to go to openings, aren't you? And if someone says no, which I've had an occasional person say no, and it's oftentimes because they have a competition the next night. Right. But I, if it's the first time, boy, I, I said, boy, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had an athlete tell me that was their highlight. Mm. Other than competing was going to opening. And then it's usually, who, who do you really want to meet? And it's more in the summer games where the answer, more often than not, Venus Williams, Serena Williams. And then in Rio, I heard a lot of LeBron. Yeah. I heard that one quite a bit. Yeah. But that's where you get, that's where you get, right? The opening is where you get that chance to be, you know, you're in, it's in essence, maybe what I think about at least is having again spent 25 years in baseball to hear how baseball Hall of Famers that I know react when they all go to Cooperstown every summer for the new induction class. And it's a Hall of Fame reunion, basically. It's an alumni event. And and that's kind of what to me what backstage at the opening ceremonies must be like for it's you it's a it's Team USA Hall of Fame. You're the best athletes in America, all of you. And you're in one place, which never happens, right? In right. your life at any other moment. Well, and it's cool because it gives you this connection that I mean, years after you're done or you're, you know, that games is over. You know, you meet these people or you come in, in contact with these people and you know that you're an Olympian, even if you didn't meet while you were there, there's something about being an Olympian that kind of bonds people, you know what I mean? And you can have this quick connection because you've gone through these really crazy experiences that are, you know, common <laughs> in nature, if, if you'll give me that. But um, I have to tell you one other thing that is really cool about the Olympics that you will not see on TV 
is um, the food tent in the Olympic Village <laughs> because that is the other place that you can meet athletes because it's there's one food area that all the athletes go for every meal. It's open 24-7. It looks like a big circus tent. And that's what that's like the best place in the world to people watch because you'll see the little tiny four-foot-tall gymnast next to the seven-foot-two basketball players and everybody's doing their thing. And you'll see the Michael Phelpses running after the Kobe Bryants like a little kid. You know what I mean? So it's you see these epic stars still being starstruck by other stars. Like it's just the cool thing and everybody that there is the best at their sport in their country. And it's just, it's a really, really cool vibe. <laughs> you know, and it's funny you say that, Laura, because that's the only thing, 11 Olympic Games now, the only thing I've missed, I've never been inside an Olympic Village and securities and all that, some reasons and all that now is rendered that probably will never happen. But I've heard the legendary stories like yours about how much fun it can be and, you know, how athletes from other sports who would never otherwise connect do. In the village. And, uh, you know, that would be, Laura, when you write the book, that could be a good chapter. (laughs) Well, Ted, I'll try to get you a guest pass in Tokyo next year. So if I, you know, (laughs) if I can make it there, I will get you a guest pass to get in. You can have a meal in the food tent. (laughs) That would be awesome. Okay. So I have another question for you. I mean, you've seen so many high caliber athletes through so many different sports um, and you've called all these amazing events, but what sticks out to you as the, maybe the quality that they all share that maybe others lack that don't quite reach those same heights? For for those of us that never had this moment, it's answering the moment. That's, you know, we all know there are various phrases we use as I expressed early, your dive at, on the last round of the trials in 04, David Badiah's last dive in London. I didn't see your, you know, unfortunately, I wasn't covering diving in 2000, so I didn't see your performance in person. But to call David's last dive, the flip side to see Tom Daly with all of the expectation he had in Rio miss a dive badly in the semis and not even qualify, you know, that that. As an even as an announcer, I'm a human being. That crushed me because I knew him, and you know how much it meant. And when you see that again, one moment every four years go go away on on one dive, you uh, you just it again. I'm not supposed to show that as the announcer, but it was it was a, it was a crushing in my pick because I knew how much that you had a feeling how much that could hurt him. But it's the it's the ability to be ready for the moment. Or in baseball, there was a great phrase that were five o'clock hitters. And if you're a five o'clock hitter, that meant five o'clock is batting practice. <laughs> and there are a lot of hitters that were great in batting practice, but at 7.30 when the game started, they weren't as good. <laughs> and you don't want to be called a five o'clock hitter. Mm-hmm. So that's the, you know, the, you know it's, the, it's the driving range on the golf course. And then you get on the first tee and you're not the same player. Same thing. So when the moment is there and you have to perform, and again, in an Olympic sport where it's, this is four years, Four years of of waiting. It could be a lifetime of preparation in all likelihood. And this is your moment. Do you have it? And that's that's the the definition. It was Apollo Ono in Torino. And Apollo had won a gold medal in the Salt Lake Games through a disqualification. He didn't cross the line first, but he wound up winning the gold because the uh, South Korean skater who did was disqualified. Yeah. So now we're going to Torino, and this is his second games, and Apollo had won medals, but he still hadn't won a gold. I mean, he had a gold, but if you know what I'm saying, he hadn't won a gold by finishing first. Right. So, so do I mean, it, do you, does he go in there, and, and maybe this is just people putting that on him, you know, but maybe 
let me back up. So does he go in with that mindset? Like I haven't really, like I have to prove myself because I didn't really win a gold. Like it was by default or maybe what the media is saying. Yeah. And I don't think even the media had said too much about it because he had won medals. And again, he was extremely, extremely popular athlete and he had a gold medal. So you hit me on the record. It said gold medal. But I, I think in knowing Apollo better now, I think inside there was that understanding that, okay, I, I want this. And so the story goes on the last race, the last night of competition in the winter games, it's like the plat, the 10 meter is the end of the diving competition. Well, in short track, it's the 500 meters, which is their 100 meter dash. It's the sprint event. It's exciting. It's thrilling. And it was the last night of the Torino games. So I'd been around the whole time and Apollo knew me and we could converse. And I finally got him to agree to do an interview with me for NBC two nights, I think, before the last uh, competition. So we're at the practice rink. He finishes the practice. Then he comes up and he sits down and he talks and he starts telling me about his visualization of what he called the perfect race. And he went on to describe it. So now we go to Saturday night, two nights later, here's the 500. And Apollo goes through, you have to go through rounds of heats to qualify. And he goes through and in the semifinals, he skates a wonderful race And because he had the fastest time in the semifinals, in the finals, he drew the inside position, lane number one, which in short track is in in the 500 meters is an exceptional advantage. Okay. So he earned that. He had, he had earned that spot. He with the, uh, again, it's for those who don't understand short track, it's a hundred meter dash. And so if you can time your start well to the gun, that's a perfect start. Apollo timed his start perfectly. He timed it so well that some competitors thought he had jumped, but was was not called a jump. He got to the first turn in front and led wire to wire and won the gold medal. And I don't know if Apollo, and I asked him this in Korea a couple of times over dinners, I'm still not sure he would call it the perfect race. I'll call it the perfect race. And it was <laughs> mind blowing to me because he had just said this on our in our interview two nights ago, but he skated the perfect race. He earned the best start position. He started perfectly, led the race wire to wire, and won his gold medal finishing first. And Apollo ended up with eight total medals, two gold. So he had the one from Salt Lake that I'd referenced, but this was the gold that he wanted. Yeah. And he crossed first. And I've got to believe that internally that's a satisfaction. Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah, even if it wasn't forefront of mine, I'm sure that was in there somewhere, but that's that's so amazing. Wow. Okay. So what, I mean, is it stuff like that? Is that what keeps you doing this and keeps you coming back for more after doing this for so long? Laura, that's another great point to raise. Yes, that's it. I think all of us who do this comment, you know, broadcasting, commentating for a living, you wind up, and I'm certainly there now, the travel becomes a grind. I'm sure as an athlete, as a coach, I'm sure, you, you know, Kenny, your coach has done this forever. You, you just, you grind down the travel. At this point in my life, a lot of the homework, because at some point you still feel like you're cramming for a college exam. Right. That gets that, that becomes more difficult with veteran status. Yeah. The competition, the event, the game. When that starts, that better be the one place you want to be. If it isn't, you need to stop. And for me, that's still the case. As soon as the competition, the tennis match, the, the football game, the the diving trials next year in Indianapolis, the swim events, whenever that starts. The competition starts. I love it. 
I love it. And that's what keeps you going. And, and I know you do because I mean, I've had dinner with you and you just you just gush about this stuff. And I love I love how much you love it and how passionate you are about it. It makes it it makes it fun. And obviously that makes that fun for any of us listening to you and watching and watching the coverage for sure. And, you know, Laura, what I'd say is I have learned more in 40 plus years now of doing this coming out of college. I have learned more about athletes, more about competitors from being around the Olympics and Olympic related events, even outside the games, than I've ever have learned from team sports, which is amazing. Well, so so explain that to me. Tell tell me more about that. No, learn more about the, the perseverance, the mental toughness you must have, again, to go through what I've, you know, not, what I don't want to repeat, but to go through some of the things I outlined as an individual. You're an individual. You know, when you 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 explained beautifully what it's like to compete for your country, to compete for something more than yourself. And of course, team sports, team athletes grow up competing for teams, right? Mm-hmm. And teams mean you have teammates, you compete for each other. And then the 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 tribal fan base that each team has, you always learn that. Individual sports, you don't have that. You know, I, I watch this in tennis all the time. Tennis players are independent contractors yeah. and they get thrown into team competitions and they, their eyes open up. They go, wow, this is a lot of fun. <laughs> My point is for to learn about the mental toughness that it takes when you have no one but you and there's no you can't blame a teammate for making a mistake. You can't blame a coach for giving you the wrong play to run. It's you. And that's it. And you rise or you fall, you live on with your performance. I have learned so much more watching that through Olympic athletes. And it could be the the whitewater kayaker that I watched win a silver medal who broke down in tears. Her husband was her coach. And it was such an extraordinary moment to you competing, to David winning his gold, to Apollo. And then to get to know, you know, occasionally you do get to know athletes from other countries like a Tom Daly. It doesn't happen often because of language barriers, et cetera. But to, to see what everybody puts into it, to see Tom Daly stand up to, you know, stand up for his personal life, as well as competing with an entire nation that pays attention to him and cares about him, right? And wants so badly for him to win. Gosh, there's no team sport athlete that I've ever been around that compares to those those things that I've been able to witness through the Olympics. That's so cool. Well, to totally flip the vibe here, because that's all inspiring and exciting, but we, we got to talk about some of the crazy stuff. Because I know you have seen at least one really crazy event. I'm sure it was not limited to 2004. Would you like to tell that story or would you like me to? <laughs> Wait, okay, I've seen more than one. Which one are we talking about? I'm talking about when the Greeks won in Athens. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, 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 you know, Synchro was, <laughs> I didn't know. Again, diving, my introduction to diving was 2004. So synchronized diving was introduced for those games. Actually, it was I, it was in 2000. We just couldn't well, have, it? yeah, because I was actually one of the synchro divers in 2000. We couldn't qualify a team separately, but they allowed individual divers to pair up and compete uh, synchro. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So 2004, and I remember the trials, there was synchro in the U.S. trials, but I couldn't get there because of my baseball commitment. I could not get there for the synchro trials. I was there for the individual trials of which you were a part. Mm -hmm. So I get to to Athens to the games and I've never seen synchronized diving. I don't know. I mean, I understand the concept, but I've never seen it. And so the men's three meter synchro competition, eight countries, seven countries qualify and the host country gets a free pass. I, I, has, has Greece ever had diving? I didn't, it didn't seem like it had, they had They've diving, had diving. they've never been like at the top. Right. I mean, never even close. Yeah. 
So the way it was explained to me, they had two because they had the free pass team into this competition and synchronized diving is just one set for the men of six dives. There's no prelims. Finals only. Yep. It's all on the line. Finals only. And it's extraordinary because you have a three out of eight shot to win a medal if you're in. Right. Right. And it's way greater odds. Mm -hmm. It took some countries, I think, like the U.S. a little while to figure this out. Much greater odds to win medals than the individual competition. Mm -hmm. Because if you qualify during the out of Olympics competitions, if you qualify in, you have 37% chance to win a medal. Right. Just by showing up. Right. And well- the Greeks put a team in, and as I understand, it was two guys that, they, as I, I sort of tongue-in-cheek say, they were running a souvlaki stand down by the Parthenon, and somebody <laughs> went there. So you guys look like you could dive. Here's some Speedos. Let's go. And I, I, I'm not sure how much experience they had, but through a, a, a series of events that would be very sad for the other divers, including the American team. Uh, in the last round of the men's springboard, I think it was five consecutive teams missed their dives. Yeah including the American team, which was very, again, very sad for them. But the joy was that not only did the Greek team, they won a gold medal. It was incredible. It was mind-blowing. And what I remember so vividly calling it was looking down on the deck and all of the, I mean, the the fans in the stands are going to go berserk, as they should. Looking down on the stands, all of the officials that were running the event from Greece, the volunteers that were working as part of Athens 2004, neutral? (laughs) They were hugging each other, jumping up and down, rolling around in the deck as if they had all just won the lottery. Oh, yeah. And I'll never for- – I mean, this is one of the most extraordinary moments I've seen because they understood how improbable it was that these two guys <laughs> just, just won an Olympic gold medal that, again, people have you know worked their whole lives to try to win. And I'm not sure these two gentlemen had done that. But my God, they were in the right place at the right time. Well, can we talk about why all that happened? I mean, I know I know it wasn't on air, but as we like, we know we're in the I'm in the athlete section. We're watching because we've got a team in there. And in the middle of this competition, all of a sudden, this guy runs out from the stands, runs up the ladder and he's in a tutu and he's he's dancing around the board and nobody's getting him. And he stalls the whole competition, dives in the pool, starts spitting out water, doing the backstroke. And when when they finally got this guy out and take him away and they resume the competition, I mean, this is when I think you really find out who's who's on top upstairs because you, you've got to be able to like roll with those kind of crazy moments because the Olympics, crazy things happen in the Olympics, good and bad. And this rocked everyone. I mean, the Chinese are so dominant. I mean, they hardly ever miss. They fail to dive. And then Russia, who was another dominant team, hit the board, like huge misses like that, you know? And then the other teams that, that should have been up there, I mean, everybody missed except the Greeks. They were like, this is yes. our opportunity. And they stood up there and they took it. And that's, I think, what blew me away most is it it wasn't just like they happened to win, but it was like this crazy moment that changed the competition and only one team took advantage of it. And that's a great memory, Laura, because what I what I remember from that front was how staggering it was. And, and it may have been a little different for you as an athlete, but for us in the NBC world, remember the 2004 Olympics happened in the aftermath of the United States invading Iraq. Mm, yeah. The world was not happy with us as a country. We were lectured very sternly by NBC going to Athens that we were t- really not supposed to wear things that identified us as Americans. Yeah. I purchased Canadian t-shirts. That's I still have Did it in really? my drawer here. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we were told it was very serious because remember, first of all, Greece has its own internal strife. Mm-hmm. On top of that, the world wasn't 
impressed with us going into Iraq. Mm-hmm. So we were taught in our hotel in Athens, which was a very nice hotel. We had cement barricades in front of our hotel. So no car, including the transportations that took us back and forth, could get to the front door of our hotel. We had to get out and walk. And then we had mag and bag at the front door of our hotel. We could not get into our hotel without emptying everything. So you learned, obviously, you learned to walk in and out of the hotel with nothing. Right. (laughs) Because you were going through, we went through mag and bag every time. I mean, that's how strong the security was Mm -hmm. in Athens. So with that as the backdrop, to have this character somehow get out there and interfere with the competition, we were blown away. How is this supposed to happen? Yeah. We've been lectured for months about how strong the security is going to be. And this happens? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a great memory on your part. And like nobody got him. That was, we were like, do you need me to go get him? Like, that was, I know. It was yeah. it, it was really crazy. But but I loved the lesson coming out of it. I mean, I didn't love it for the athletes who were crushed by that, but it was, it was a really interesting moment. And, and just to remember that like, Good and bad, crazy things may happen. You have to stay within the moment. You have to stay within what you are capable of doing. Because I think a lot of the teams all of a sudden felt the pressure that they may didn't feel because they were like in the you know the routine of the competition. Then all of a sudden it stopped and they felt the weight of what was happening. And I that just took them out. And so just kind of a good a good lesson I think going in. But well, that's a, that's great recollection because I, again I and I'd forgotten. You're right, the Russian diver. He's a, I think he was the. Uh, the veteran diver Dimitri. flips the board. I, yeah. Dimitri, right? He the guy with, the, with a knife with a knife wound on his side. Yes, he's always been um, my hero. <laughs> he, yeah, I remember he clipped the board. That's right. And then sadly, because it looked like the American team was going to win a medal, and unfortunately, they missed their dive also. Yeah, well, and even even the, the Aussies and the Germans who stood on the podium. I mean, they they didn't dive that well either, and they all you know kind of felt the gravity of it. And were you know unusually disappointed being on the podium. So yeah, it was it was just a crazy crazy meet. But then the Greeks celebrating in Greece. I mean. If you're going to win and step it up and do it at your home country, that's that's how you do it. <laughs> that was that's, awesome. That's the most insane, improbable moment I've ever seen in the summer games. And then the winter games, I had the craziest race ever in the Olympics, which was the 2002 short track race in Salt Lake City. And again, this was Apollo Ono's breakout. So the arena, the downtown arena was sold out 17,000 strong for each of the short track nights. And this was the crazy race, a thousand meter race where coming into the last turn, Apollo's right there in the race for gold and a South Korean skater tries a very low percentage pass, winds up wiping out four skaters. That's right. Generally, there are only four skaters in a race, but because of a funky short track rule with disqualifications, there were five skaters in this final. Four skaters wiped out. The fifth skater was an Aussie named Stephen Bradbury, who was not of the same caliber skater as the four in the finals. But because of this rule and this disqualification rule in short track, he was advanced into the final. He was so far behind the pack, he skated through, literally through the crash and won the gold. I remember that. He won the gold. Apollo, to his everlasting credit, bounced off the padding and sprawled across and stuck his skate blade across the line to win the silver. He won the silver. Yeah. It was an extraordinary reaction by Apollo. But the point I'm making is that Stephen Bradbury, who was really a very popular, he's an Aussie. Everybody liked the guy. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the sport liked him. He was extremely popular. He won a gold that it was the first gold medal ever won by Australia in the Winter Olympic Games. First one ever. So he's a national hero. And the other skaters could not be mad at him. It wasn't his fault. Mm-hmm. 
he just happened to be, if he were a better skater, he wouldn't have won because he would have been in the crash. Exactly. Right? He just was, he was so far, I mean, far enough behind, two or three seconds behind the other skaters that he literally went right through it and, and crossed the line. So I actually, NBC hired him between the Salt Lake games and the Torino games to do some commentary with me on some short track events. And I used to joke with him. I said, it's just like, it's like winning a lifetime achievement Oscar. You won the lifetime achievement gold medal because you've been this pioneering, you know, Australia, the winter games. It's not a big deal. Short track is not a sport there. He was the first one and you won a gold medal. How awesome. And he was of great humor so he could laugh about it as well. (laughs) Um, But that race was the most bizarre. It's what, it's really the single race that is the sort of the imprimatur for short track on the minds of Olympic fans was how could this possibly happen? Yeah. And it does. And you know what? There's no recourse. There's no, right. When it's the last turn, you're heading to the finish line. They don't start the race over again. You just have to live with it. Right. And the Korean skater was wrong and he fouled and he was not going to win a medal. And Apollo got a silver, even though he got wiped out by another skater and had to bounce off the pads to win one. It's kind of like, your sport where you have to live with the judging mm-hmm. and gymnastics and figure skating, the other sports that have to, you just have to live with it. The short track skaters learn they have to live with that craziness and the fact that the sport really is, it's almost impossible to have a, a sane set of rules because the sport itself is just nuts. Right. Well, like obviously the stuff we're talking about, like that's good sports drama. You know, it's crazy events, crazy things happening in the event. But like in your mind and and the things that you watch, like what kind of sports drama, like what makes good sports drama for you besides like the completely nutty out of the, you know, like unexpected things happening? Well, the sports drama is, again, it's that, I mean, the first thing I think of again is the, is the last round in London and these divers on David Wadaya was in the running, but you know, gold, you're going to say the Chinese divers so good. And we know how good the Chinese divers as a group are, and for David to just crush his last dive and then have to wait because the Chinese diver goes last to see. I mean, it was just those are the moments to see in Beijing, to see Matt Mitchum, the Aussie diver, just again, absolutely nailed his last dive to to win a gold that denied China a sweep. China was going to sweep eight for eight in Beijing and Matt Mitchum on the final night. Huge dive. Platform, mm-hmm. huge dive. That's, a, I mean, I still, I'm sitting here talking to you, Lauren. I'm kind of chilling when I think about how extraordinary he was in that moment to have a, a, a pitcher named Ben Sheets, who ended up having a good long major league career, but as a 21 year old, I think, to go out in the gold medal game in Sydney, baseball game that now has NBC showing. And NBC wasn't paying attention to baseball <laughs> at the beginning of Sydney. But by the time we got to the medal round, wow, Tommy Lasorga's got this. T- and suddenly NBC's there. I mean, we're we're doing the game, but we're on NBC. We've got a reporter. We have all these other things. And Ben, she's going and throws a shutout <laughs> in the gold medal game. It was awesome. I mean, those are the things, again, that you just... You know, when, when when you understand that the lights are at their brightest and you still see an athlete perform, that's the moment. I mean, those are what, again, that's what you come back for. It's what I say in, in tennis, in well, mostly in tennis. I say, I see it a lot in, in basketball as well. We all want to see a competition, a game where someone wins by doing good things, by making plays, making shots, nailing your dive, by skating the perfect race as opposed to 
being where it's plagued by errors, but you happen to make fewer errors than the other right. team or right. fewer errors than the other player. You know what I'm saying? Where mm-hmm. the quality of the competition may not be as good. It's so much more fulfilling for everybody, especially for the athlete, I'm sure, where the team, if, and as I say, it's the rarest moment in, you don't have it in your sport necessarily, but in tennis or in a team sport, when it's either two players or two teams that both play their best at the same time. That's, I mean, I can count on one hand the number of tennis matches I've called in 30 years where both players have played their best at the same time. And so just a very quick example, it's not Olympics, but 2001 US Open, this match was about four nights before 9-11 and Andre Agassi played Pete Sampras in a quarterfinal match and they played into the fourth set. All four sets went to tie breaks, which means it was six all. Nobody broke the other player's serve. And as the players walked out on the court to start the fourth set tiebreak, which wound up being the final tiebreak, but wasn't guaranteed, 23,000 people in Arthur Ashe Stadium stood and gave GOAT players a standing ovation. Wow. Because they understood that they were seeing two champions that were both playing their best at the same time against each other. And they appreciated that. That's a rare, gosh, Laura, that's, that's a rare That's really moment. cool. And it was. It's it's one of the, again, 30-something years of tennis. That's one of the greatest moments I've ever win- witnessed. That's so cool. Is there any major sporting event that you haven't called that you would still love to? <laughs> no, you know, the the only, uh, the, the ones that I've never been to because of my other jobs in, in life, and these are, this comes across as a wah moment because no one should feel sorry for me. <laughs> But I've never been. I, I've, ne- I've I've never been to the Kentucky Derby. Oh, and and since I like calling races, I love calling swimming races. I would I would enjoy having a chance to call a horse race. It would be challenging, obviously. Uh, and the other one, I've never been to the Indy Five Hundred. Oh, and again, I'm not I'm not a terribly huge auto racing fan, but it's a great event, and so you understand that because it's an event that captivates hundreds of thousands of people in person. I'd love to go see it sometime. So those are the two that that I've never been to. I mean, I've been blessed to be around so much. And, you know, in team sports, I called a Super Bowl uh, when I was with the San Francisco 49ers. I was part of a World Series call with the Minnesota Twins. So that, you know, those are highlights as well. That's so but cool. honestly, Wimbledon finals and the Olympic gold medal results. I mean, those are, those are the things that as a kid, you never dream that even when I was dreaming of trying to do this for a living, I never dreamt that that would happen. Mm. Well, it's kind of a fun fact. I was stalking you on Wikipedia because that's what a girl's got to do before these podcasts. But um, even though I know you, I wanted to look up some of your stats. But it had this fun fact that um, your voice was featured in the movie A Few Good Men as you called the Minnesota Twins game being watched by Tom Cruise's character. That is so cool. I mean, yeah, you've just about done it all. (laughs) So I I, uh, the quick story on that is there are two different scenes, and that's a fabulous movie. Oh, yeah. There are two different scenes in the film where Tom Cruise is in his apartment walking around with the bat in his hand, you know, just trying to work out the legal strategies, but he's watching ball and he's got the bat in his hand while he's doing it. One of the scenes, and I think it's the first one, is an actual game that was played in 1991 in Baltimore, which is why I'm sure why they used it, because the movie's in Washington, D.C., between uh, the Minnesota Twins, who I was working for, and the Baltimore Orioles, my voice is the call. I found out about it the morning after the film opened. Oh, wow. When I had friends calling me in Minnesota, hey, how come you didn't tell me you were in this movie? <laughs> well, tell me about it. And so it turned out that they used this call. So I 
call my uh, the person that's representing me at the time. I said, why don't you call and find out, you know, maybe I get a little something for the effort. And the re- response from Rob Reiner's uh, production company, Castle Rock, was sue me. <laughs> and so the lesson, so it's to this day, I mean, it's plays repeatedly, repeatedly, and all I get for it are a lot of, hey, that was really cool to hear your voice. <laughs> um, and, and, and I joke about that. But the, uh, the part is that's the reason why there's copyrights on telecasts. And as a result, uh, what what the Rob Reiner had to do was pay Major League Baseball a fee to use the clip. Not, I didn't get any of that. <laughs> well, Ted, sometimes oh, the still, best. It's things, still fun. Sometimes the best things yeah. in life we just don't get paid for. <laughs> no, I, that's right. Yeah, that's that's right. Amen. You know that well. <laughs> well, Ted, it has been such a treat, like talking with you and gushing over stories, and just thank you so much for taking the time to do this. We look forward to hearing your voice again and seeing you um, covering trials and the Olympics next year in Tokyo. Uh, it's going to be awesome. Well, Laura, you're one of the. Olympic champions and Olympic athletes, not only not only have I had the pleasure of getting to cover, but to get to know and to, to know who you are and what you represent as an athlete, as a wife and a mom is extraordinary. So it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.